And as you're turning there this morning, give you a little bit of context. Passover is coming soon for the people in this passage. It was a time when the Jews celebrated the exodus from Egypt. Now Jerusalem right now is teeming with hundreds of thousands of people who have come to celebrate and make sacrifices. This year, however, Jesus himself will serve as the ultimate and final Passover lamb by his death on the cross. There's a little bit of context for where we're going to be looking today. Now, if we're going to boil down the sermon, the two main things that I want us to understand or kind of are going to be driving the sermon is first that Jesus was betrayed by one of his followers, Judas Iscariot. The second point I want to make that Jesus was betrayed by those on the outside in the person of Pontius Pilate. Okay, two different betrayals, Judas and Pontius Pilate. So if you have a copy of God's Word and you have it open to Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, I'm going to start with the first uh, point that Jesus was betrayed by one of his followers, Judas Iscariot. And it says um, in Matthew 26, 14 through 16, when Matthew writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, it seems odd, doesn't it, that Jesus would be betrayed after three years by one of his own followers, that, that one of his own followers that he'd been walking with, ministering with, would turn his back and betray him. But that would betray the Son of God. It seems heartbreaking to us when we read it and have been raised understanding this story that after three years of ministry, healing and preaching, that one of his inner circle would willfully go behind his back and have him killed. What led to this? What was, what was the circumstances where Judas, of all the rest of the disciples, why would he choose to betray the Son of God? Why would he choose to betray Jesus? Why did Judas think that this was the right thing to do as opposed to not betraying his Lord? Now, it's not 100% clear, but it seems as if Jesus and Judas had a falling out shortly before our text takes place. If you, if you see in verses 16 through 13, Jesus received pushback from Judas for allowing himself to be anointed with very expensive perfume at Bethany. John's Gospel, in fact, names Judas specifically as the one criticizing Jesus, as well as calling Judas a thief and uh, of the ministry money that he was trusted to oversee. Now, according to Judas, it seems, when, when, when he was criticizing Jesus at Bethany, he was criticizing Jesus' anointing with this very expensive oil as being wasteful, as perhaps being selfish or self-indulgent and uncaring about the poor, that Jesus perhaps was being greedy by allowing this woman at Bethany to anoint him with such expensive perfume. Judas accused Jesus of wasting perfume that was worth a year's worth of wages on himself. And it was, again, worth about 300 denarii. 
We don't have any other indicators from Scripture about Judas's prior feelings toward Jesus, where, where there was a kind of a conflict there. But the anointing at Bethany seems to be the breaking point for Judas. Uh, in fact, the, the anointing at Bethany is told in three Gospels. It's told in Matthew, it's told in Mark, and it's told in John. And Luke gives an, an instance of Jesus being anointed by a woman, but that's a totally different uh, story. But in all three of the stories where Jesus' story of being an, anointed at Bethany is told, in all three of those Gospels, Judas's betrayal of Jesus is what immediately follows. It's what immediately follows. And I don't think it's by accident. So Judas's anger at Jesus didn't allow him to reconcile. His anger instead led him to the doors of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Notice that the religious teachers didn't seek Judas out. It wasn't that the, the religious leaders were looking for somebody who, who was kind of had a sour look in Jesus' inner circle or was kind of looking distant from the, the other disciples when Jesus was preaching. Judas approached them. When Judas gained an audience with the Jewish leaders, he had a simple question for them, and it was this. What will you be willing to give me? if I hand him over to you. At this point, the betrayal of Jesus is complete. Judas's betrayal wasn't when he accepted the money. The betrayal was when he showed up at the Pharisees and Sadducees' doorstep. I know verse 26 says, from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. But it seems as if that that piece of scripture is implying that from that moment he was paid, he, Judas was looking for an opportunity to bring that whole betrayal to completion. But Judas, being who he was, remember he was in charge of the finances, so he had a financial mind with everything that he did. Judas, being who he was, wanted something tangible, something financial, a kickback for the effort of betraying Jesus. The scripture says it was 30 pieces of silver. And this is significant. This isn't an arbitrary amount of money. According to Exodus 21.32, 30 pieces of silver was the penalty an owner of livestock would have to pay if his livestock gorged a slave to death. In other words, it's blood money, a recompense for a killing. Okay, so, so when... When you think about this, okay, this isn't insignificant that they would pay Judas 30 pieces of silver. They didn't give money to Judas in order to just kind of get at Jesus and put him on trial and see whether he's guilty or not. They paid Judas off as blood money. Their intentions when they paid Judas the 30 denarii wasn't just to arrest Jesus, but it was arrest Jesus in order to kill him. This is why they paid Jesus or Judas, what they paid him. It was the equivalent of four months worth of wages for a laborer at this time. In other words, what we would call minimum wage, and it would be worth around $7,500 today. We can look at this story in two ways. We can view it through kind of a metaphorical telescope and a metaphorical microscope. When we look at this text through the telescope, looking at something far away, trying to make it close up, 
looking way back over the course of 2,000 years, we tend to ask certain questions. We ask, we want to know and ask why and how would someone ever betray the Son of God? Knowing what we know now about Jesus from the vantage point of of 2,000 years, we are curious how anyone would betray someone who was and is the Son of God. Why didn't Judas just choose to work out his grievances with Jesus? Why did he have to go to this extent and actually betray him? If we look at this story through a microscope lens, however, we ask different questions. If we look at the microscope lens and look at it really close, we have to turn the focus on ourselves and ask some intentional questions about us internally. We have to ask about our own hearts and our own ways of thinking when we look at Judas's betrayal. And when we search our hearts after reading a passage like this, we discover Unfortunately, when we come to grips with the fact that we are sinful too, where we are just as uh, sick and in need of a Savior as Judas was, we notice too that we're capable of evil too. When we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, when we take our eyes off Jesus, we, we, we are lost in a sense, okay? Even though we would have salvation in Jesus, when we take our eyes off Jesus, we are still, we are still, we still have the propensity to do sinful things. Okay? The second thing we find is we find we are capable of being just as hard-hearted as Judas, both in our relationships with Jesus and with others. When we search our hearts after reading a passage like this, we should never come away assuming that we're above acting in the same irrational and hurtful ways as Judas. Even as believers who still have a sin nature, we are still susceptible to act in ways that do not resemble Christ at all. And this is both a warning and it is a truth. That we have to keep our eyes, even when we are in Jesus, when we are in Christ, have to keep our eyes constantly on Him or we are susceptible to doing awful and being awful on our own rights. It's also why we resonate with the disciples six verses later when Jesus tells the disciples that one of them has betrayed him. Knowing their own sin nature, they begin asking whether it is them who has betrayed Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we have to do the same painful yet needed heart searching. Honestly, I believe this is perhaps the hardest part of Christian growth of being sanctified, and of being discipled. It's not in consistently reading your Bible or having a consistent prayer time. I think the hardest part of Christian growth and discipleship is coming to terms with our own sin nature and submitting ourselves daily to Jesus. It's one of the hardest things we do to know that we are in Jesus and we wake up first thing in the morning and submit all of our sin natures, all the things that we struggle with, submitting all of that over to Jesus every single day. Ultimately, Judas, he never did this. And it's probably the most, one of the most tragic things about Judas's life is that even though he had the Son of God with him for three 
full years, heard him teach, saw him work miracles, had orthodox theology to a degree we'll probably never understand the sight of heaven. Being in the presence of Almighty God Himself, Judas still never allowed Jesus to permeate his mind, to permeate his heart and the way he lived. And neither did the man who had the power of the empire to set Jesus free, but willingly chose not to, the man Pontius Pilate. And that's where I want to focus now is that Jesus was betrayed also by the man Pontius Pilate. If you look at Matthew 27, look at Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 25. It says this, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to releasing to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Verse 21 says, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Then Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What crime has he committed? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Pilate saw that, the, saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and all our children. In order to keep the Jews subjugated, the emperor Tiberius had given, had given the local governors the right to exercise the death penalty in the, in the regions that they governed. This kept rebellions down and kept small local squabbles out of the ears of the Caesars. But here's a question for you if you're a careful reader of this story. If the Jews were ready to stone Jesus as they were last week, remember they were going to pick up stones to stone Jesus? Why would they even bother bringing him before Pilate at all? I mean, if he's guilty of blasphemy, why didn't they just take him out behind the synagogue and, and pelt him with stones and let that be that? Why take him before Pilate at all? There are two main reasons. The first was Jesus' following was becoming substantial and significant, and it probably wouldn't go well for them to stone him. And B, if Jesus violated, if it could be proven that Jesus violated Roman laws, then the Romans could kill them. And the Romans could do the Jews' dirty work for them. What was the charge that the Jewish religious establishment tried to pin on Jesus? The charge was insurrection. 
Jesus claimed to be the King of the Jews. And at that moment, there's only one other person on earth who claimed that title, and it was Caesar Tiberius. If Jesus was guilty of saying that he was the true king of the group, of a group that Caesar ruled, Jesus could be killed under the charge of treason against the empire. Just as the title King of the Jews offended Herod 33 years earlier, it would likely offend Tiberius and Pilate as well. So the whole case of Jesus was twofold. Blasphemy from the Jewish perspective and treason from a Roman perspective. When Jesus was brought before Pilate, there was a very familiar account. There's a very familiar account of of the Jews uh, persuading the crowd to ask for Barabbas. And I want to focus on verses 24 through 24 through 26 here. Notice the language. Notice the language of Matthew that he uses about Pilate. Verse 24 says, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. Your version may say something like when Pilate saw he was getting nowhere. It's as if Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, that the charges were false and obviously motivated by envy. He says as much in verse 18. Even though Pilate had people such as his wife speaking truth to him, it's frustrating for Pilate. And it quickly turns to tragedy when he saw a riot forming in the crowd. Not only did he see a riot, but he also, in his mind's eye, saw what Rome might do to him if rebellion breaks out. So instead of landing on one side or the other and being content to land on his convictions, even if it made one side upset, he chose instead to do what? Bow out. What's sad about Pilate is that he didn't even try to do his best for everyone, like a good politician would. He didn't even attempt a middle-of-the-road diplomatic solution, which is kind of in his job description as a governor, to try to do the best for everyone. Pilate didn't say, okay, Jesus, you've got to drop this kingdom talk or they're going to kill you. And neither did he say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you have to quit trying to kill this young man Or if you don't, you might find yourself on a Roman cross for murder. He didn't say this to either side. Instead, Pilate, literally, as the saying goes from this story, washes his hands of total responsibility. And obviously, there's two things working in tandem here. First, God was and is in complete control of everything that's happening right now. He was bringing about his own sovereign plan of salvation through Christ in this situation, even in the midst of sinful people being sinful. But it was also Pilate's abdication of personal, moral, ethical, spiritual, and civic responsibility that was a huge determining factor here. His inability, Pilate's inability to stand on his knowledge that Jesus was not an evil man worthy of crucifixion. And his inability, Pilate's inability to listen to the wise words of his wife is what makes him so tragic here. And by the way, I'm fully confident, I am fully confident that Pilate's inability to listen to his wife deeply affected his marriage here. 
When he walked through his portico that night and told his wife that due to his spiritual and ethical and moral leadership, he allowed Jesus to now be crucified. I have no doubt that his inability to take the reins and and act as a good, moral, ethical, and spiritual man, that that had an impact not only his marriage, but probably his family too. So up to this point, you might be saying, okay, Pilate really messed up. He really did a bad thing, but where's the betrayal of Jesus that you keep talking about? He did a bad thing, but did he really betray Jesus? Here's where I think he betrayed Jesus. Pilate's abdication of personal responsibility was the betrayal here. Allowing Jesus to be carried away to the cross, knowing the charges leveled against him were in bad faith, is the betrayal. Pilate's inability to listen to the wise counsel of his wife and to Jesus was the betrayal. Pilate's desire to protect himself without doing the hard work of telling the truth to those bringing charges against Jesus was the betrayal here. And even though we are separated by 2,000 years worth of culture, in life circumstances from Pontius Pilate, there are certain patterns in his failure that we can apply to our lives. There's three main ones. Let's look at them. The first one is people may or may not share our religious viewpoints about the truth of Christ. However, one of the worst things we can do is to be known as a follower of Jesus, but because we feel the need to protect our reputations, our friendships, etc., abdicate our responsibility to tell. We're afraid of the repercussions if we come out with it that we're believers about Jesus. Second is knowing the truth means speaking and practicing the truth. Knowing, speaking, and practicing the truth require us to do so in compelling ways in all areas of our life. Pilate failed to do this. Again, in all areas of influence with those he governed, those he worked with and for, his family, and those he was in a position to protect, both the Romans and the Jews. And thirdly, God's wisdom requires as much listening as it does speaking and acting as well. If Pilate listened well to Jesus in their private conversations and also to his wife's letters that told him to have nothing to do with that innocent man, as opposed to listening to the words of the religious leaders, letting the circumstance of a a potential riot drive his decisions. Pilate would have been the man he needed to be. So we see two betrayals of Jesus here, don't we? Before the cross, one by an internal circle of followers and another by someone external, in the culture. One betrayal led to the other. The internal betrayal by Judas facilitated the external betrayal by Pilate. One betrayal we expect. We expect the betrayal of those in the culture, perhaps. Another was unexpected, and it was by a person who practiced faith alongside Christ himself, and it led to damage from the inside. Both betrayals are tragic. Both are failures of not seeing Jesus correctly. 
Both betrayals result from not valuing Jesus as most valuable and beautiful and putting oneself at the center. And both betrayals speak clearly of our need for a Savior. It tells us why salvation is not only a good thing, but it is necessary. Not only necessary for our salvation, but necessary, honestly, for human flourishing. For Jesus' death on the cross to, to take us in, in, our, in our terrible and sinful states and make us good in Him by the power of the cross. Our only hope is not repeat, our only hope of not repeating, not repeating the patterns of Judas and Pilate is found in the one in whom they betrayed. Let's learn that we could be just as susceptible to the flaws of Judas and Pilate and keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. And this is a sermon primarily given to believers this morning. This is one where we, we take stock of who we are in Jesus and realize, I may be in Jesus, but I may not be living exactly as he wants us to live. But it's, a, it's, it's, it's a question for us to do a lot of honest head and heart searching, whether I recognize I'm just as susceptible to doing things as anyone else. And I have to keep my eyes on Jesus. At the moment I keep my eyes off Jesus, like Peter, I fall. And as the team comes to lead us this morning, I want us to think about those things, to ponder those things. If you are in Jesus, consider what it's like for us to be followers of Jesus on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis in our workplaces, in our schools, and in our homes. Let's give this time over to Christ as we respond in song. If you want to join this church, if you want to repent, if you want to give your life over to Christ for the first time, now's the time to do it. Don't wait till the team sings a second note. Come right now. Let's pray. God, we love you. 